So um, we are continuing in a, in a series that we've started. Uh, it's, well, it's been a little while. I missed a couple weeks there in the middle. But um, a series called Dear God, where we're exploring uh, certain questions that arise in the faith. Uh, you know, whether we're kind of new to the faith or we're a strong believer, um, there tend to be these questions that we have. And sometimes they're nagging questions. Sometimes they're really uh, faith or life-defining questions. And uh, the question that we're going to be looking at today is actually, it's kind of uh, worded interestingly, but um, it's a question, why isn't church more fun? You know, and fun is, well, fun's not in quotes, but church is in quotes, because it, it encompasses kind of the idea, not just like church on Sunday, but the idea of church in general, or maybe even Christianity. And I think when we think about church, um, one of the words that is typically associated with it is not the word fun. Now, maybe like if you've been to church a lot, if you went to like youth group, maybe you think of, oh, yeah, that was really fun. Like you tend to think of like retreats or like locket or praise night or something like that. Or maybe even if you think about college and uh, campus ministry and maybe you drive really far to eat something, I think about like, yeah, going to L.A. or S.D. just to get some food, and I think, oh, yeah, that's, that's really fun. And to be honest, sometimes we try to, I think, mistakenly recreate that kind of experience in church. Like, oh, I want this, this feeling. Like, it's really fun, like the good old days. Now, when I think about, about this question now, like as an adult, what we're going to talk about today, I'm thinking about really two categories of thought. Uh, the first is that Christianity itself is boring, right? Like spiritual practices are boring. Reading the Word, singing songs of worship, serving, praying, evangelism, you know, mission, whatever, etc. It's like that stuff actually is boring. It's not fun, you know, and we're not super interested in that. That is kind of a view, I think, that many non-believers would have. Like, oh, yeah, church, it's like something you do. It's moral. It probably has some value, but it's boring. And there's a, a second kind of group or, or thinking that I'm imagining when I think about this question. And it's that all those things, worship and the word and serving and praying, it's not boring per se, but it's not exciting. It's not powerful. Right? Church has become a job. It's one that we know we need. It's one that we know needs to be done, but it's not one that we're excited to do. It's not something that we actually enjoy doing. And we're going to be looking at, we're going to be exploring this question why is that the case? Um, how can that, you know, is that the way it's just supposed to be? Or does, is God's intention, God's design for what church is supposed to be, is it different than that? Now, uh, rather than answer the question directly, we're going to kind of be exploring what the church and by extension our experience in church is meant to be. And hopefully that will answer this question in our hearts. And so if you guys have your Bibles, um, let's go ahead and open them up to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. 
um, chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 22, and we're going to read, you know, we'll read this whole section through verse 33, but we'll take it kind of one piece at a time. This is Ephesians chapter 5, and we're starting verse 22. This is God's word, and it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Let's read on. Verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, let's stop right there for a second. Now, I've been preaching this text a lot, actually, because of, like, weddings. And usually this is the kind of text that you would preach at a wedding. Um, and, of course, it's, it's appropriate in such a context, right? Because Paul is explaining the roles of husbands and wives in marriage. Remember, and I, I've talked about this, you know, several times, but sometimes in these letters, in these epistles, there's something called household codes. codes. And so they'll go through and they'll talk about, like, what is the role of a parent? What is the role of a child? What is the role of a husband or a wife? Even last week when we looked at First Peter, you know, there was something about slaves and masters. And, you know, Peter also talks about the role of wives and husbands. Now, Uh, His main exhortations in that regard, Paul's main exhortations are wives, submit to your husbands as the church does to Christ, and husbands, love your wives as Christ does the church. And that's actually, that shows up in lots of other passages too, where they talk about marriage. But this passage in Ephesians 5 is actually a lot more in-depth. It's a a lot more in-depth look at marriage than is looked at in any of the other epistles. Uh, you look in verse 25, Paul expounds on just how Christ has loved the church, right? He gave himself up for her to sanctify her, referencing Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for all of our sin, right? Cleansed her with the washing of water and the word, present her uh, without spot or any such thing. She might be holy and without blemish. So this all talks about, you know, this is referencing the atoning work of Jesus that covers over all of our sin, and imputes to us his righteousness. So gives us his righteousness so that when God looks at us, he can see us completely holy and without blemish. And some of these things, these images are even played out in marriage. Right? Kind of the idea of the bride's coming down with a white dress. That he nourishes and cherishes the church because we are members of his body that Jesus now sustains us, you know, with the word. And with his headship, and he says, husbands, that's how you should love your wives. Now, I'm not going to dwell so much on the marriage part, but I will say, husbands, that is how we are meant to love our wives. That's hard. That is hard, but that is what husbands are called to do in marriage. But I could make the argument that that's not Paul's main point in this passage. What wives are supposed to do and what husbands are supposed to do, and we'll get to the wives part in a second. Because the key to this passage is right here. Right? Verse 31. 
And it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, right there in verse 31, Paul is quoting from Genesis 2.24, right? So this is way back when Adam's alone in the Garden of Eden, and there is no suitable helper found for Adam. So if you guys remember that passage, what's happening is God's created Adam, and God says, we have to find a helper for you, Adam. So they bring to Adam, one by one, every animal. And Adam names the animal, and then God says, that's not a suitable helper. So uh, somebody, so some, an- not somebody, but some animal comes, like a lion comes, and Adam says, remember, you know, man has perfect dominion over all the creatures. Right now, at this point, sin has not entered the world. And so God brings the lion, and Adam says, I'm going to call that a lion. And God says, that's not a suitable helper for you. And then he says, elephant, and he says, that's not a suitable And he just goes through all the animals. Adam names all the animals. God says, no suitable helper is found. And so God creates, right, puts Adam to a deep sleep, pulls out the rib. Out of Adam's rib creates Eve. And then that is where this verse comes up. This is a direct quote, basically, from Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So... Two things noted there, a man leaving his father and mother and holding fast, right? That idea is that there's a covenant happening happening here, a lifelong commitment, and that those two are becoming one. And then verse 32 says, this mystery is profound. So he's saying somewhere here in, when when Paul reads Genesis 2.24, He says, there is a profound mystery in this text. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Do you, do you, did you catch that? Like, do you see what he's saying there? He's saying when Paul reads this passage inspired by the Holy Spirit, he sees a profound mystery about Christ. When Paul reads Genesis 2, when Paul's reading Genesis 2, about Adam and Eve, before a church existed, before Jesus had ever come to earth, he says that passage is about Christ and the church. So what he's saying is, it's not that thousands of years after that, right? Christ came and God thought, well, I need an analogy now to explain how Christ loves the church. And then he says, oh, look, marriage is there. Good thing marriage exists, right? I will use marriage as the analogy, as the illustration of Christ's love for the church. No, it means thousands of years before we would ever know the point of the illustration, God embedded in humanity this illustration, this illustration of marriage. Thousands of years before the advent of Christ, before the building of the church, upon the cornerstone of Christ's work, God gave us the image of the sacrificial love of Jesus in marriage. That's the profound mystery that God embedded this illustration in our hearts before the point of the illustration was revealed. It would only be revealed thousands of years later. Now, here's the point, okay, of this passage, really the main point for today, but we'll look at some takeaways afterward. 
The covenant love between Christ and the church is the purpose of the image of marriage. It's the purpose of the image. It's the reason that God created marriage, period. Now, you have to think about the significance of that, okay? Because making this passage only about marriage misses what marriage means to humanity, to all of human society. Everybody here knows marriage. You don't have to be married to know what marriage is, right? Either through our parents or our grandparents or an aunt and uncle or a friend or a sibling. Or if you are married, then you know that way. Not to mention movies, TV shows, literature. Romantic relationships are intuitive to us. And the final state of those relationships is marriage. Even in every Disney movie. Even in every happily ever after. Anything you think about, if there is a committed relationship. And, and, and think about this, right? Like, Anyone in the world past puberty and probably even before that, if you've ever seen romance at any point in a cartoon, on TV, TV show, sitcom, you know, a movie, you read it, you read it in a book, you know, or you see it in a picture, like it doesn't matter. If you see it anywhere, you can relate to it. Even if you, even if you have never been in a relationship. You just inherently understand it, right? Like you, you can relate to it. That universal understanding of what romantic love is and what it is supposed to result in, that that fundamental part of what makes us human, that's an image that God embedded into humanity at the beginning of existence so that one day when the gospel would be revealed, each of us would be able to grasp how much he loves us. Right? Because at some point, you weren't born knowing the gospel. And at some point, the gospel is revealed to you And there is an image that you have known pretty much for your whole life that you can point to, that God can point to and say, I love you like that. Except more, exponentially more than that. Right? This isn't a passage that merely explains marriage. It's a a passage that explains that marriage itself has always been God's way of communicating his own love for us. This is why God designed marriage with differing roles for men and women. Right? This is why at the end of Titanic, you know, when, when there's the door, right? And they both can't go on the door, apparently. I don't know. Seems like they could have. But, you know, one of them has to die, right? So it's apparent one of them has to die, and Jack floats away, you know, to the bottom of the ocean, and he dies, and Rose lives, and you're thinking, yeah, that's how it's supposed to be. Man's supposed to die. If, ma- if a man and a woman are there together, and they love each other, and one of them has to die, the man should be the one to die. He should voluntarily die. You don't think, that's weird. You think, yeah, that's, that's great. It's love. It's the way that it's supposed to be. Now, if Jack is, like, dying, and he's, like, get off the, you know, he, like, throws her into the ocean, and he gets on the thing, then you're like, what? Like, that's, this is bad. Like, this isn't a good love story. This is horrible. Yeah, you're supposed to think that. That, that, that image has been embedded in your heart from the beginning of existence. God did that on purpose so that you would know that's the Jesus figure, the one who dies, the one who gives himself up, the one who sacrifices. Now, if that sounds uninteresting to you or boring, um, that's okay. (laughs) What I would say is there was a time you know, for, for Micah's first birthday, I bought him a, 
you know, Boomy and I, we, we bought him a, a little fire truck, right? So I spent all, you know, the night before his, his birthday party, I like spent all night. We ordered it from like Amazon. Comes, you know, take it out. It's in a bunch of pieces. Put it all together. Right? I'm like spending all night like putting this thing together. I put it there, right? We wrapped it up. It's his birthday. He opens it, right? It's like shiny, you know, big fire truck. And then he played with the box all day, right? He plays with the stuff inside the box. He plays with the box. You know, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, first I'm like, dude, what's been freaking 50 bucks on this stupid fire truck? Like, you just, you just got a box, you know, for free, and you would just love that more, right? Like, I could have just done that. Paper, there's like, you know, the, the packaging, whatever it is. It's like, I just, I'm sure I could find that for free somewhere, right? Like, that's all I needed to get you, and you'd be happy with that. And then I'm also thinking like, hey, you know what you start doing as a parent is like, you start being like, hey, look at the truck. You know, like you start, you start like driving it around like, hey, you want to, you want to play with this? And then after a while, you start being like, hey, hey, good, hey, play with this, <laughs> right? Like, like, why aren't you playing with this? Now, part of that's just because I'm sinful, right? <laughs> I'm thinking like, dude, I begged this thing and you're not even playing with it. Let's not, let's, let's just put that part to the side. Part of it though, is that I'm thinking, You're playing with a box. (laughs) This is better than a box. Now that, that illustration doesn't show that Micah really appreciates boxes. You know, that he really knows like the value of a box and he sees something that I don't. No, it shows that he's a dumb kid that doesn't know the value of things yet, which is fine because he's a kid. But it's like, if I knew someone who only ate steak well done, then I would be like, no, you can't do that, right? Like, I would be like, no, that's, you need a change, right? Like, like you need to try this. Like, I would do everything that I could to get them to eat this medium rare, very, you know, high quality steak. And I would be like, please just try it. And I would prod them and I would poke them and I would cook it for them. And I'd put it in their face. And I'd say, please, please, please eat it. Now to them, they might feel like, dude, you're being burdensome to me. Because why are you trying to make me do this thing that I don't want to do? But my heart is not to be burdensome. My heart is to say, you are missing something so great because you are fixated on something else that is not very valuable. See, I think we are often so interested in the fun of the box that we miss the value of the gift that is Jesus. And yet... When God lovingly calls us to the things of greater value, we feel like, God, stop burdening me with that. Stop pushing me to stuff I don't want to do. Now, how can we recover the beauty and the value of what church is meant to be? So I'll... I'll point to just a few things from this passage. Three things, okay? Covenant relationship, complete submission, communicating the glory. Okay, those are the three things we'll talk about. The first one. Here's a truth I hope that you think about when you think about church. The church is meant to be a people that exists in 
a covenant relationship with Christ. A covenant relationship, right? Like marriage. That's the illustration that's, it's an intimate, exclusive love relationship with Jesus. Now, in fact, the picture of marriage follows God's relationship with his people all the way throughout scripture. So Hosea 2, Hosea is a kind of a, a really prominent example of that. But this is from, you don't have to turn there. This is Hosea 2.19. It says, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord, Yahweh the Lord. Now, of course, Hosea is a book about a prophet who's called to love a prostitute, Gomer, who is unfaithful to him. And that is meant to illustrate the relationship between God and his people. You know, Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. He's saying, the creator of the whole universe is your husband. Right, you're called into this intimate, exclusive love relationship with the creator of the universe. Now, that image wasn't fully fleshed out until Christ came and demonstrated the depths of his sacrificial love on the cross. And when he did, and that, that's why Paul looks at this and he says, look, do you, do you get that? Do you get that you're able to be in this exclusive, intimate relationship with God. That's what church is supposed to be about. I mean, there's a reason that like polygamy has never threatened monogamy. Right? Because you would think if if it's just like more is better, you know, then why not? Why can't you just marry lots of people, right? Which is polygamy is, right? It's like, oh, well, you can have many wives or whatever, many husbands. Like, why has that never, ever threatened monogamy? as an institution in history. I mean, it's existed, but it's never really, like, been the norm, like, the main one, right? Every society ever has always had marriage. Why? Because there's something embedded in there that we understand. Like, when you like somebody, you don't want other people to like them. You don't want them to like other people. Right? As soon, you know, it starts with, just, like, you might just have some kind of infatuation. Like, you know, think back to, like, high school or something, right? When you just have that little crush and that's how it starts. But then what happens? You start to get jealous. Like, oh, why, why is she talking to him? You know, why is he talking to her? That's normal. That is, in fact, how we are supposed to feel. That is the nature of this type of relationship. It's, it's in us. We know it intuitively, right? If I, you know, imagine Boomy and I go on a date, right? And we're uh, our anniversary is coming up. Let's say we, you know, we go on our anniversary, we get a babysitter, get dressed up, go out to some fancy restaurant, right? She's telling me her day. She's like telling me her feelings and her thoughts and, you know, her hopes. She's just like pouring out her heart, right? Then I'm like, you know, I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm listening and stuff and I'm doing this, right? And she's like, what do you think? And then I go, you see that girl over there? She's pretty hot, right? Like, if I responded like that to Boomy, now, what, what do you think would happen to me? Or like, even a better question, what do you think should happen to me? If I actually responded that way, then 
I mean, nothing good, right? Like, something bad definitely should happen to me. Like, imagine she gets upset, and rightfully so, obviously. And she's like, what? Like, why are you talking about some other girl? Like, we're supposed to be having a, you know, a date here. And I say, well, because she's prettier than you. Or, you know, what she's talking about right now is more interesting than what you're talking about. So I was trying to, I was trying to listen in on that conversation. In fact, do you mind if I go sit over there? And I, they, they look like they're having fun over there. So I want to go over there. Now, no, that sounds really bad, right? I've never done that, nor will I ever do that, obviously. I've never even thought that. Now, that would be messed up. You all see that that would be messed up. But I feel like sometimes when it comes to church, it's like we're looking for something exciting or fun or interesting, whether or not it has anything to do with Jesus. Right? It's kind of like, well, you know, I just want to... Like, we like a lot of the, the buzzwords that are associated with church, right? Like community, you know, or like confession or like music, you know, kind of like thing, learning stuff or inter- things being interesting or, you know, even kind of even some of the ideas that kind of have been hijacked, right? Like fellowship, and it's like whether Jesus is a part of it or not, I don't know if I really care that much. I just want things that are associated. Let me be clear about this. The best part of Christianity, Christianity is Jesus Christ. That's the core of it. That's the crux of it. And for anyone, you know, unsure about their faith, to be in a covenant relationship with Jesus is what he offers us when we put our faith in him for forgiveness and salvation. That's, that's the main thing that's offered. Not all the other stuff. I mean, all the other stuff is good, don't get me wrong, and it's a part of it, but the crux of it is this exclusive, intimate relationship with Jesus where he becomes greater to you and other things become less to you. St. Augustine said this, you have made us for yourself And our hearts are restless until they find themselves in you. The you being God, obviously. God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless. Our hearts are restless. They are wandering. They do not know what they want until they find themselves in Christ. The church is meant to exist in an intimate, exclusive love relationship with Christ. A covenant relationship. Here's the second thing. Church is meant to be a people that is in complete submission to Christ. Okay, let me go back to this part about the wives, right? Wives, submit to your, your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. This is a tough teaching for wives. Okay, the idea of submission. And this is, in fact, a topic that we will revisit in this series. So I'm not going to talk about it too much today. But I want to, because that's, that's, the, that's the shadow. The substance is the idea that the church is supposed to submit completely to Jesus. See, when you come to church, what you want to do is you want to grow in submission. That's what you want to do. Right? That's what all, that's what us Corporately, as a church, that's what we want to do. 
Submission is the command. Sanctification is the result. We can't sanctify ourselves. We can't make ourselves holy. What we can do is increasingly submit ourselves to God, right? Meaning that, God, you know better than me, and I'm going to try to abide by your word, not just like do the things that your word says, but I want my mind and my heart to be live, you know, to live in obedience to what you're saying. Like I want basically to have this disposition that you, you know, your way is better. Now, some of you, and I say you because I do not include myself in this. Some of you are good at this. Okay, Some of you have, have, you, you have become habitually kind of humble and teachable. And not by nature, because none of us are good at this by nature. But some of you have kind of grown into this habit, right, of basically giving people the benefit of the doubt. Like kind of giving others, like presuming the rightness of others before yourself. And some of you are good at this. You assume others have like a good reason for acting the way they're acting. You kind of for thinking the way they're thinking. You assume their innocence or their good intentions. You know, whether, you know, it might be unclear at the beginning, but you kind of just assume that for them. Now, I I don't place myself there because I'm really bad at that. I tend to, you know, I, I would say actually, in fact, most of us, I definitely include myself, we're not that good at that. By nature, none of us is good at that. And Many of us haven't gone past this, have, we haven't gotten past this idea that we're mostly right. Like, we're right almost all the time. Right? And we kind of think, like, my logic is the best logic. We kind of think, like, why don't people think more like me? Why don't they just do this or that? Because that's the way I would do them. That makes sense. Like, oh, I, don't get, I don't get this person. I don't get that person. Like, why do they do things the way that they do it? We start with the presumption that we're right. We try to poke holes in other people's thoughts, intentions, and feelings, like their logic, their way of doing things. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt before we give it to anyone else. Now, knowing that, you got to imagine this, okay? To grow in Christ's likeness, to be humble like Jesus, to be servant-hearted like Jesus, to be authoritative yet gentle like Jesus, to be powerful yet meek like Jesus, to depend on God utterly and submit to him completely like Jesus, to be able to be going to the cross and then say, not my will but your will be done, to be able to do that. If we're to become like Jesus, we have to come here assuming there are things in me that need to be changed. Like, we got to go to the Word thinking there are things in me that must be changed, that must be addressed, that must be corrected. Psalm 139, this is the end of Psalm 139, 23. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Right? And the whole psalm is about God knows everything, right? God sees me no matter where I go. God knit me together in my mother's womb, right? If I go to the depths of the sea, if I run, I can't run from God. God sees me no matter where I go. And so he says, God, search me and know me. Like, tell me if there's anything wrong in me. He doesn't say, God, ass- God uh, affirm the good in me. Right? Tell me all the things I'm doing right. Because that assumes that mostly the things we're doing are right, and that's what we need, and we don't need correction and guidance and teaching. The psalmist assumes, and this is all throughout Scripture, but the psalmist assumes he needs direction. He needs correction. 
we need to grow into the habit of doing that, right, when we go to Scripture. Now, let me just say this, okay, because this can get real, like, man, this is a little too realist or, like, depressing, like, pessimistic. Whatever is, is, like, needs to be corrected in us, it has no bearing on how much God loves us. And that's, the whole, that's the whole point of the, the marriage illustration. It's like, no matter what, God's, God, God's going to love you, right? God's already demonstrated that on the cross. doesn't change that one bit. Knowing that, we have to get into the habit of being able to say, uh, God, how can I better submit to you? You know, how can, I, how can my life be lived better in submission to you? The last thing, the church is meant to communicate the glory of Christ. The church is meant to communicate the glory of Christ. Now, let me just, this is an excerpt from a, a book I read. So imagine this. Okay, I'm just going to read it to you. You're about to enter a building that is set apart, a place where you hope to join with others and experience something special, something unavailable to anyone who is not with you in this moment. As you walk along the, se- the streets and draw closer to this sanctuary, this refuge in the midst of a bustling city, you sense that the building itself is speaking to you. The transcendence of the architecture says you will experience something otherworldly in this place. You notice that the doors are huge, much bigger than they need to be, oversized and fantastic. Their heaviness communicates something about the weightiness of this experience. They add a dramatic flourish to the ritual of entering this place. Once inside, you feel small and the space feels sacred. You look at something far away, and that makes your body feel like you're entering somewhere sacred or holy. And then the author says, where do you think you are? Right, like a religious temple, a gothic cathedral. And he says this, actually, I'm describing the Apple Store in Soho in Manhattan. This, this, this monologue, that's about the Apple Store. Right, this wondrous place. He goes on to say, yeah, they, and they've copied, in fact, Apple has, in their architecture, copied what they use, like the kind of architecture that they use in cathedrals. Certain cathedrals, and they've added this minimalistic element, right? But there is, a, there is this uh, idea. There are, so there are some architectural elements, like when you walk into a cathedral, it's lowered. It's actually like, so the ceiling will be up here, and then it'll come down a little bit, like in the doorway, and then when you walk inside, it'll be raised a lot. So it'll have, like, a high ceiling. It's supposed to give you this sense of, like, awe, right? You're walking in. And if you've seen, like, a, you know, a lot of kind of Catholic cathedrals, if you walk in, it has that sense, right? Apple copied that, you know, or at least this one in, in, in Manhattan. And there's also, in the upstairs, that's where the, the kind of the, the spiritual priests, that's where they are. It's the, the genius, the Apple genius people are on the second floor because there's supposed to be this idea of like you're transcending, you know, you're going up to the experts. It's weird because what's happened in our culture is that <laughs> secular things have become sacred and sacred things have become casual, right? Like it's an event. They now have an event for everything, like, like there's 
I think, and it's summer, actually. There's a bunch, like, video games have an event. <laughs> you know, comics have an event. Like, there's Comic-Con. There's, like, E3. There, now Disneyland has their own event. And, like, you know, everybody's got an event. Like, everything is an event. It's all this kind of special stuff, right? Apple's got their own event, and Samsung has their own event, and Google has their own event. Like, everybody has an event. And do you know what we've turned church into? A non-event. Right? Come as casual and as comfortable as you possibly can. Right? Let's make everything as normal as it can possibly be. As easy, as accessible. Come when you want. Leave when you want. Do whatever you want while you're here. Like That's what we want it to be. And no, that's not what it's meant to be. Worship is meant to be sacred and powerful. It's about the glory of God. If you want to grow in that sense, to be able to communicate that glory... I mean, you got to be able to at least maximize this time and space, right? This is the only time probably during this week that you will ever just be dedicated to focusing on God, right? You might listen to something else, you know, when you're doing other things. And, of course, everything that you do is supposed to be glory to God, like your work and stuff like that. But that's secondary, right, because you're doing work or if you're working out, or if you're, you know, driving, or in the shower, whatever, right? This is the one time, of course, you have your personal relationship with God, you should, but this is the one time where you're in a corporate setting where it's just about God. When you sing a song to God, that's just about his glory. It's not about anything else. We should seek to deeply enjoy the glory of Christ. That's how you communicate that well. Um, you know, John Piper puts it this way, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. That means as much as you enjoy God, that's as much as you're going to glorify God. How can you do that? Let me give you a couple applications here. One, be present and appreciative of this time. Right? That just means when you're here, be here. Right? Don't be checking other stuff. Don't be looking at your phone, right? Don't be, like, thinking about all the other things that you got to do. Do what you got to do. And if you're, if you're, like, tired and stuff like that, if you're hungry, eat before, sleep before. Like, be prepared when you come to not have to deal with that kind of stuff. And then tell your neighbor, you know, whether that's, like, your friend or, like, your spouse or whatever, hey, don't let me, don't let me like, be distracted, like when you go to, you know, and it's like somebody said in our lead, we were talking about worship at our leaders meeting, you know, a couple weeks ago. And somebody said, people, I think people consider worship like corporate worship, kind of like the previews before a movie, right? It's kind of like the servant is the movie. And as long as you get there before the service, like you haven't really missed anything, right? And if you come in during the previews, like whatever, it's not really a big deal. I love previews, by the way. So, I, you know, I'll be there before. But like, I mean, and maybe that's, maybe that's bad, actually, because I think probably some of us, a lot of us, give more respect to previews than we do to worship, corporate worship time, which is a little sad. Like, when I went to watch Avengers Endgame, I was, like, there, like, early. I'm, like, I'm getting a drink. I'm getting popcorn. I'm sitting in my seat ready, like, preparing my heart, you know, to watch Hawkeye's family get dusted. It doesn't, it's, it's too late now, guys. I tell you the whole movie. You've all seen it. Uh... I mean, it's like, yeah, we really, 
like if you go to a concert or if you're going to watch something, if you were going to a sporting event, if you're go- like you want to be there and you want to soak it up, right? That's the point of being there. So when you're here, like be here, soak it all up. Here's the other thing I'd say. Seek to share frequently about the glory of God's love. Now, I don't know how much you actually share about that. Let me, <laughs> so let me tell you something. So I'm at, I'm at Target the other day, right? I'm at Target, and I'm shopping with, you know, we're, we're like the whole family's there. Usually I have Micah in the cart, and uh, Boomy's kind of holding Josiah, like in the, in the thing, in the wrap, right? So she has Josiah. She's walking around. I'm with Micah. I'm turning a corner. And, um, you know, Micah, he's very, like, at, for some reason at Target, he's, like, super friendly. He's, like, the most friendly he ever is at Target, right? So he's in the, I, I don't know, he's happy to be in the cart or something. So we're passing by this couple, and he's like, hi, you know, to these people. He just says hi to everyone. And so they're like, hi, you know, this, this woman is like, hi. And she comes up to us, and she starts talking to us. And she's like, you know, oh, you know, uh, do you live around here and stuff? And we're like, yeah. you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm just being friendly. And she's like, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. And so she's like, oh, we go to church at, you know, such and such in Brea. And I was like, oh, okay. So for me, whenever I have this kind of interaction, I usually I want to immediately know whether they're Christian or not. Because if they're not, I'll usually kind of go into, you know, evangelism mode. But then they were Christian. And so I was like, oh, it, it kind of turns me in a different direction where I, I kind of like let my guard down. And I become very like, oh, like you know, what's going on with you, and, like, can I, like, pray for you, and stuff like that, so, like, I'm just, like, talking with them, and then her husband comes, you know, and so we're all talking, and then Boomy comes, and she's, like, she just assumed that I knew this person, actually, because we're having this very friendly kind of conversation, and then at one point, she's, like, oh, she's, like, yeah, we moved here from somewhere on the east coast, because this couple is mentoring us, and we're going to retire by age, like, 40 or whatever, but, like, before we turn 40, I'm like, okay, that's weird, right? <laughs> like, that's a weird thing to bring up. And so she's just, like, talking about it more and more and more, right? I see her husband's face, and her husband's kind of, like, wants to get out of this conversation. And I'm like, this is kind of, you know, weird. It's, and, and so she talks about it more and more, and I realize, okay, this is not normal, right? Like, this, this lady's trying to scam us or something, right? They're trying to get us into some kind of, like, you know, pyramid scheme or something. Probably I'm just assuming it's that. So I'm just like, okay, like, you know, nice to meet you. And so we leave and Boomy's like, how do you know her? I'm like, I never met her before. You know, it's like they're trying to scam us or something, right? It's okay. Fast forward two weeks later. I'm at Target again. And I'm buying, I'm buying ground beef. And Mike is like, said, he's, he's reading this. So what we do is we get him a book when we're at Target. And he reads it while we're there, and then we return it at the end, right? So he's like, he's reading this book, right? It's like Avengers. And then this, this guy, he, he comes up, he's like, oh, hey, little buddy, you know, like Avengers. Like, did you watch the movie? You know, all stuff. And we start talking about it. So I'm like, okay, cool. Now the guy, so I'm th- again, I'm thinking like, okay, should I, you know, evangelize him? I'm like, where, you know, I, I tell him I'm a pastor. He's like, oh, I go to this church. It's like a big church. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. All right. He's Christian too. So we're just talking. And then same thing happens again. He's like, yeah, I moved here. This couple's mentoring me. I was like retiring at an early age. And I was like, are you serious? Like, what is happening here? And I'll be honest. At this point, I was like, I'm evangelized to this guy because I'm mad, right? 
like either he's really not Christian and I'll convert him, which which is great, or he's 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 just like we won't convert and he'll be annoyed at me and I'm just, I don't care though. It's like that's my revenge, right? So I'm that's what I'm thinking. But you know what happened? Like we end up we end this conversation and he's walking towards. I guess this is also a public service announcement if you run into these people at Target. But he's walking toward checkout, right? He has a bag of stuff. And I'm like, now I'm following him, right? So I'm tracking him. He goes towards checkout. He puts his stuff down somewhere, like in an aisle. And then he goes back into the store. Because what he's really doing is he's just wandering around the store looking for people to talk to. You know, and I, I remembered what we talked about. So I looked it up, you know, on Reddit. And it's like, oh, this is, this is yeah, this is a scheme. You know, it's confirmed by the internets, you know. And, like, here's the thing, right? Like, at first I was annoyed, and then I got mad, and then, you know, I left and whatever, and I was thinking about it later. And I'm like, you know what's crazy, though? It's like, these people are dedicated to doing this. Right, like they're so like they will just wander around Target for hours pretending to buy stuff and then never checking out and going back into the store to to deliver this message, this horrible like 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 scammy message. And I was like, man, what are we doing? Like, what is what is the church doing? Now, look, this guy is probably, mo- these people, they're motivated by, like, making money. You know, I'm thinking, like, oh, you know, yeah, it's, it's different. Right? They're self-interested. But then I thought, what are we motivated by? Where does our attention go? Where does our hope go? Where do our efforts go? If it wasn't a scam... If I said, hey, if you get one person to join this thing today, I'll give you a thousand bucks cash. Would would you do it? We don't realize the value of what we have in Christ. There is such an immense joy and hope and glory in the love of God demonstrated to us through the gospel. And I would say, yes, soak it up as much as you can and talk about it as much as you can because it will grow your heart in the depths and the peace and the life that exists there when we do that every day. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much that something as intuitive to us and as fundamental to humanity as marriage, the institution of marriage, God, is at its core about your love for us. God, that you have designed that so that we could always have, so we could have this intuitive understanding of what it means that you love us sacrificially that you lay down your own life so that we could have life in you I pray God that we as 
the church, as your people, would we deepen in what that means today, every Sunday, God, every day, as we live our lives, we pray that you would impress upon us, you know, maybe not the the frivolous or superficial fun of it, God, but the deep enjoyment and satisfaction in it of being in relationship with you, of submitting to you, of living to communicate your glory, God. Grow us in that today and every day as we put our faith in you. We thank you so much and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray.